From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Could giving money directly and regularly to people who are experiencing homelessness help folks get back on their feet faster than food stamps or affordable housing programs? A new project is giving it a shot. It's still been a struggle trying to pay off some bills that uh, I didn't really know I had. But during the time that it was weighing me down, it was just unbelievable as far as pressure. Also today, Colorado has been a pioneer when it comes to legalizing and regulating marijuana. But is pot becoming too potent? And student filmmakers who made documentaries to tell stories they struggled to share. I was incredibly nervous. I mean, I, I talked about it, you know, with my mom a lot. You know, we, we were very open about that, but it was kind of like our secret. Because of community support, Colorado Public Radio has scaled up its operations, delivering trustworthy information and music to audiences throughout the state on multiple easy-to-access platforms, with spaces for us all to share and embrace stories of hope, resilience, creativity, and joy. What CPR brings to your life is only possible because of financial support from the community. Many giving as Evergreen members, donating what feels affordable on a monthly basis. Add your support at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. How does a city address its housing crisis? The Denver Basic Income Project has one idea, give people experiencing homelessness money monthly. They partnered with the University of Denver to try it out for a year. Mark Donovan is the founder of the Denver Basic Income Project. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Avery. Thanks for having me. And Jennifer Wilson is a researcher with the University of Denver. Thanks for joining us, Jennifer. Yeah, thanks for chatting with us today. This is based on the concept of universal basic income, which gives everyone a set amount of money. Mark, why is it important to you to begin specifically with people who are experiencing homelessness? Well, the first thing I'd say is, is we're not exactly doing universal basic income, but what we've seen is with guaranteed income projects around the country and also with the innovative project, New Leaf Project in Vancouver, it's being proven time and again uh, that this works and it's a, a better way to uh, accelerate transitions from, um, from being unhoused. And so we are uh, modeling on what's already been done and just trying to uh, increase our understanding of how to do that better. And we'll get a little bit more into the idea of how this can be helpful. But Jennifer, I'd love for you to unpack that idea that um, this is not just a universal income. It's actually a guaranteed income and people will be receiving different amounts of money. Why is that? Yes. Yeah. So um, so we're designing the project to be 12 months and folks will be randomly assigned into one of three groups. So we have two treatment groups. Uh, one will be receiving a monthly $1,000 direct cash payment, totaling $12,000 over the 12 months. Um, the second treatment group will receive a larger lump sum up front. We're curious if uh, sort of a lump sum payment is more helpful for folks. And so they'll be receiving $6,500 that first month and then $500 for the 11 consecutive months. And then... Um, Finally, we'll have a third group, a control group, and they'll be receiving $50 a month for the 12 months, um, you know, to keep them engaged in the study and, and to demonstrate that their participation really matters as well. Mark, how many people will be participating and who is eligible? 
So the eligibility criteria is we're using the McKinney-Vento definition of, of homelessness. There's different ways to define that. Um, adults 18 and over, and there will be screenings for um, substance and alcohol, uh, untreated um, addiction and, and mental health. Um, but we're going to be working with the uh, amazing partners on the ground, the nonprofits that are working in this space to um, identify potential recipients and put them into a selection pool. Uh, the amount of people that are impacted, our target is to have uh, 260 in each of the treatment groups, so a total of 520 and then 300 in the control group, but it does require additional support from the community. So we are going to be asking um, everyone in Denver to, to join us and, and to contribute in, small or large to help make this um, as impactful as possible. And how will you get the money to people? We're working with um, a great partner that ran the Left Behind Workers Fund for Colorado that's distributed over 10,000 uh, direct cash grants to uh, individuals that's impact charitable. And we will be using rechargeable debit accounts or if the individuals are banked, we will do direct transfers to their accounts. Jennifer, this is a research project. Tell me a little bit more about how you'll measure the project's success. Sure. So we're using a mixed methods, randomized control trial research design. Um, the randomized control trial means that um, participants who are recruited into the study, they'll be randomly selected or randomly assigned into one of the three groups that I described. Um, and by mixed methods, it's kind of what the name implies. We'll be collecting data in a number of different ways. And so um, participants will be sitting down with researchers to fill out long form surveys, collecting um quantitative data on uh, lots of different topics, everything from um, employment and finances, uh, housing stability, um, physical and mental health, social networks, family dynamics, you name it. Uh, we'll also be sending monthly SMS surveys via text message. So all study participants will also receive a phone um, as part of the program, we understand that this is a critical way of maintaining communication with the research team and asking them to complete various research activities like these surveys and interviews. Um, but we're also really interested in hearing people's stories. Um, we know that that um, that the, the quantitative data is really important, but the qualitative data, those rich narratives, that's where you really see the nuance of um, how direct cash is impacting people's lives directly and in all those, um, those very tiny and, and major ways. And so we're taking a page out of Seed's book, Seed being the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, um, which has released some of their first year findings. And they have this incredible storytelling cohort uh, so we'd like to replicate that in our study and have a storytelling cohort, which centers and elevates the voices of participants who are willing to share their stories publicly, um, because we know that lives, they don't change overnight. And it's important to um, to hear these, these more nuanced longitudinal stories to understand the longer term impact of this type of cash. Yeah, absolutely. And Mark, you've already you've already seen some of the effects direct cash can have and heard some stories. Your friend Willie Larkin lost his housing last spring and he put out a call on Facebook. You saw it and responded. Here's Willie. Mark reached out to me and told me about the program. I thought I'd be a great candidate for it. I told him I would do everything I said I'm going to do to be a good client of this program and, and do it for what it's supposed to be used for to get people off their feet and back on in life. So I'm trying to do it the best of my ability, and uh, it's still been a struggle trying to pay off some bills that uh, I didn't really know I had. But during the time that it was weighing me down, it was just unbelievable as far as pressure. I've been praying up to that point, and uh, I almost have given up, really. I was at my end. 
Mark, what did Willie Lurkin tell you about how the direct cash assistance worked for him? Well, he was, um, when I re- reached him on that Saturday, he was in his truck where he'd been for some time, for days, and he was both lost and he had given up all hope. Um, and it's, he told me, you know, that it, he told me that it's, it saved his life. He said that um, it, it renewed hope and he just saw no path out of the hole he was in, which was essentially four to $5,000 in debt but just a lifetime of, of discrimination and doors closing and inequity and what all of these uh, programs that we're modeling and what we're trying to do in Denver are showing is that when you create agency and you treat individuals with dignity and respect and kindness and give them a basic income floor, just the basics to survive, it's enough and it works and it works now. And obviously, people find themselves without housing or with unstable housing for a myriad of reasons. Mark, why do you believe a direct cash method is better to help people out of poverty than, say, affordable housing programs or food stamps? Well, affordable housing is is another major problem that has to be fixed, and that's not that's not being addressed by this. But we do know from the other studies and from my own personal work giving out individual grants, that this has an immediate and direct impact. And so while I was sitting back last year as COVID hit, watching my net worth go up with my Tesla investment that grew by 700%, while people were going out onto the street and losing their jobs and their income, I realized that I was in a position of privilege where I could uh, make a difference now. And I believe it works because of all the data that's coming out of all of the programs that have been running going back not just years, but decades. And something I heard, oh, go ahead, Jennifer. Well, if I can also share, you know, uh, food stamps or SNAP benefits, it's, that's one very small piece of a huge puzzle. And, and uh, as a social worker, before doing research, I was uh, practicing social work and I was working with folks who were experiencing homelessness. And, and we would find that these everyday life circumstances would come up, like someone's car would break down and they would need an immediate repair to maintain the job that keeps them in their housing, let's say. And to find um, those kinds of flexible funds to pay for things like an immediate car repair, it's uh, th- those are the things that I think are really, um, people are hanging on by a thread and those kinds of funds are not very often available. There are life expenses that are necessary, but they don't fall under the really easy to the easier to find programs. Right. Universal basic income is a controversial idea. And as you said, this is not universal, but it does stem from that idea. Uh, what kind of pushback have you all heard? Go ahead, Jennifer. Sure, sure. So this is a common question. Um Uh, folks like to ask about so-called temptation goods, spending on alcohol, cigarettes, drugs. And and there's pretty extensive research on this topic, which overwhelmingly shows that when people are given direct cash, they don't spend their money on these so-called temptation goods. In fact, research continues to show that over the long term, they actually spend less on these items. So the New Leaf Project in Vancouver, which was also a 12-month randomized control trial with folks experiencing homelessness, they actually reported a 39% decrease in spending on alcohol, cigarettes, and drugs. And so we know that when you give people direct cash, we have data on what they are actually spending money on. They're spending money on rent and bills. They're buying essential medication. They're paying for dental work to be done. They're buying food. They're getting a more regular supply of healthy food. Um, They're paying for childcare. They're saving for the future. And the list goes on and on. So 
in terms of the, the temptation goods myth, we feel, I think that it's been pretty sufficiently busted at this point. And um, I would say our team is really interested in focusing instead on how when people are given space to exercise, you know, real agency and self-determination, like Mark talked about, how they will chart their own path towards thriving and improving life for themselves and their network, because we see them investing in um, their own families and their social, their broader social network as well. And the, invest- other, oh, go ahead. the other strong pushback is on is often is um, that people won't work and they'll stay at home and that it's not affordable or sustainable. And the Stockton program showed that the treatment group actually was 50% more likely to achieve full-time employment. And on the issue of sustainability, I just don't buy that. I think that poverty is a societal and a political choice. And with the Denver Basic Income Project, we are choosing to say that we will not choose that. Jennifer, you're describing this path to thriving. How do you expect the money to affect the mental health of the people who are involved? Yeah, um, uh, our, our hope is that we envision significant positive impacts on mental health um, for participants. So research definitely shows that uh, participants who um, are, are involved in programs like this, they experience decreased stress, decreased depression, anxiety, increases in overall life satisfaction, general cognitive functioning. So that's your memory, your attention, your decision-making. People report increased confidence around taking risks, like going back for that extra training, applying for a new job, starting a small business. It frees up people to be able to spend more time with their loved ones, with their children, doing things that they love. Um, It builds their hope and trust in systems. And so um, we're hoping to see, uh, yeah, really positive impacts on mental health, especially compared to the incredibly adverse physical and psychological impacts associated with being unhoused, um, where the risks and threats are numerous. Mark, this is a research program with a one-year duration. How are you thinking about that transition next year for people who'd participate when they stop receiving a basic income? Well, I'd like to run what I'm calling a half-life study and extend it um, at the end of the program. I'd like to take the treatment group and cut it in half and continue it forward and do that for five years so that we can look at that benefits cliff impact and continue to show not only the impact within the, the first year, but if you continue and you make this a steady program, that it can um, that that's that's where you'll have the best long-term benefit. Jennifer, at the end of this project, or if it is extended, what do you want to know? Sure. So um, like I said, we're hoping to understand the individual level impacts of the receipt of this kind of direct cash. So on people's lives, on their communities, on groups, individual uh, specific groups experiencing homelessness. But big picture, we're looking to better understand how to best deliver this type of cash assistance to those who are unhoused and just in general by testing different mechanisms for cash distribution, recruitment, communications, those kinds of program logistics. Well, I want to thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Avery. I just The last thing I want to say is that part of what we're trying to show also is that kindness and generosity um, is, is viral and can... Um, and can make a difference today. And so we, we want to encourage everybody to join us and help to not only support financially, but just kindness with people you meet on the street to treat them the way that you hope to be treated. Thank you, Mark. Mark Donovan is the founder of the Denver Basic Income Project, and Jennifer Wilson is a researcher with the University of Denver's Center for Housing and Homelessness Research.
There's growing concern about teens getting access to extremely potent marijuana and the troubles that may follow. CPR's Benta Berkland found Colorado may consider new regulations for products with the highest levels of THC. Cynthia Arangua lives in Arvada. She says last year she became increasingly worried about her 16-year-old son. He was getting even more agitated, more intolerable, more unapproachable, less reasonable. Arangua says her son already had a temper, but it got worse. Now he would frequently go from zero to 60 for the tiniest things. There was nothing we could do. Like, it was completely game over. We had probably 20 holes in our walls. She says one of the lowest points was when he threw a rock that narrowly missed her head. That's when she called the police and he went to the emergency room against his will. All those who saw him come in thought that it was either meth or heroin or some sort of high-dosage opioid. But what doctors found in his system was THC, the psychoactive component of marijuana. He was taking it in highly concentrated doses, up to 95 percent. When she was cleaning up his bedroom, she discovered the extent of the problem. Our lives were complete hell. And it was all about confiscating dab pens, cartridges, wax canisters, concentrate canisters. High-potency products haven't really been addressed from a public health perspective. Dr. Sam Wong is a professor of pediatrics at Children's Hospital Colorado. He helped author a state health department study on high-potency marijuana. Marijuana concentrates in many forms have become much more widespread since legalization. There's moderate evidence that individuals who use marijuana with TTC concentrations of greater 10% are more likely than non-users to be diagnosed with a psychotic disorder, including specifically schizophrenia. You know, evidence of THC intoxication can also lead to acute psychotic symptoms, and that's worse at higher THC doses. Some parents, public health officials, and policymakers are increasingly worried about how often teens are getting a hold of these products. Democratic Speaker of the House Alec Garnett is working on legislation he hopes to sponsor to address the issue. The problem is big, and it's getting bigger. And within five years, if we don't do something about it, it's going to be an issue that every single American knows about, similar to the opioid epidemic. Garnett believes a first step is to increase taxes on the more potent products and use that money to better understand the health impacts. Colorado has issues funding ongoing education, research, and mental health issues related to this. Placing a tax on uh, marijuana concentrates, it's similar to what we've done with other vices like nicotine. And like nicotine and alcohol, a big concern is products getting into the hands of teens too young to buy them legally. In Colorado, recreational buyers have to be 21. But Garnett and others are worried about the 18 to 21-year-olds with medical marijuana cards who may be buying and reselling to younger teens. Garnett wants to limit how much product they could purchase with a medical card. It shouldn't be free reign. People shouldn't be able to go and buy 40 grams a day of the highest potency products on the marketplace because there's no logical reason that you would actually need that. Colorado already limits the potency or strength of marijuana edibles. 
and some advocates think that should be extended to all products. There were short-lived discussions about a 15% THC cap. That idea doesn't appear to be on the table anymore. But even the possibility has the industry worried. This is where they uh, make the concentrates, wax shatter, live resin, and various other things. Sherard Rogers owns the Roll-Up Dispensary in Denver. He's a father of three. He says the marijuana industry and his own business are shifting to more potent products like concentrates. He says they're popular with customers and, for certain health conditions, beneficial. Because concentrates are, are pure, they're a cleaner product, and they don't have the smell that a typical cannabis product would have. And it's cheaper, more dialed in. He points out that marijuana is already heavily regulated, with protections in place to try to keep it away from children. And this is going to sound terrible. It's going to hurt. It's going to really hurt. But aren't parents supposed to have the best interest of their children and, and be the gatekeepers for their children? It's not as if that we are selling a cannabis product out the back door. I want people coming in who are of age and are using it for the right purposes. Some in the marijuana industry say they would support a higher tax on more potent products. But Rogers says smaller owners are already struggling to stay afloat. You don't have any tax deductible expenses on the store side because it's not federally legalized. If they want to have us go out of business, then continue to increase the taxes. For Peter Marcus with Terrapin, a cannabis company based in Boulder, any new regulations have to be based on science. And right now, there's little tracking of things like how often THC consumption leads to hospitalization. Marcus says a low THC cap for flour and concentrates would put the vast majority of Colorado's marijuana industry out of business. They don't understand that it is literally impossible for us currently, nor would we want to genetically modify our plants to reach some arbitrary number that the legislature pulls out of thin air. Marcus says there's not even a scientific definition of what a high-potency product is. But there is a market for it. These products then come out of nowhere, and for responsible adults, they should be able to make the decisions for themselves. The industry has one very strong ally in all of this, Governor Jared Polis. He's long been a staunch advocate for marijuana legalization and is not expected to sign any legislation if the industry isn't on board. He told CPR he doesn't want to regulate marijuana differently from alcohol. And I think we all start with a sincere interest in reducing underage use of alcohol and marijuana. It's a real problem, uh, needs to be solved. Even for Cynthia Arangua, whose son ended up in the hospital and then rehab, she says she doesn't know what the state should do. She voted to legalize marijuana, but says she never expected it to end up like this for her family. As a parent, it's really difficult to know what I would like to see changed. What I can tell you is I'm not so sure we should have a dispensary on every street corner in Colorado. People on all sides of this issue recognize it won't be easy to address. But Colorado isn't alone in wrestling with it. Currently, Vermont is the only state with a limit in place. Four more states have introduced bills to cap THC, but those measures have not gained traction. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. Thank you. 
Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with two student filmmakers' personal journeys. Their award-winning documentaries explore mental health struggles and loss. I'm Avery Lill. You're with CPR News. Climate change is a global issue with undeniable local impact. I'm Joe Wirtz, editor of CPR's climate team, and we're focused on deeply researched, comprehensive coverage about the environment in and affecting Colorado. You already hear this work on your radio. Now you can also get it in your inbox. Sign up for CPR News Climate Weekly for a digest of fact-based reporting on the impact, solutions, and political aspects of climate change. Sign up at CPR.org slash Climate Weekly. Post-traumatic stress disorder and suicide rocked Bailey Francisco and Kalia Hunter's worlds. But in high school, they didn't have the words to talk about it, so they made films. They're both graduates of the Springs-based Youth Documentary Academy, and they recently won awards for their work at the 2021 Short Circuit Film Festival. How did they find ways to share their stories? Let's hear first from Francisco. He won the Young Filmmaker Award for his film After War. A couple of years ago, my family was torn apart due to PTSD and traumatic brain injuries that my dad suffered while in the military. It was a really rough time, but as I got older, I realized that it's not really talked about. And uh, I just, I don't, want, I don't want people to feel alone like I did. I just want to get my story out. Bailey. Were you nervous to tell your family's story? No, I was incredibly nervous. I mean, I, I talked about it, you know, with my mom a lot. You know, we, we were very open about that. But it was kind of like our secret is just kind of like a dark cloud looming over our family that, you know, just we didn't want to talk about publicly. And I, I was incredibly nervous to tell my story. I wanted to make a film about something else, but plans fell through and, you know, I was kind of forced to make this story. but. Before the first showing, I was petrified. What did compel you to tell this story, even though it was one that obviously was really hard to share? Well, I, I knew that it was an important story to tell because, you know, growing up in a military community, at least five out of 10 kids, don't quote me on that statistic, but, you know, a lot of kids are suffering from the same problem, if not, you know, the exact same problem. How was it to interview your mom and your dad about some really painful memories with a camera? Yeah, it was very, very scary to interview my dad because I, you know, I was young and I was nervous about how he would react if he knew that this was the story that I decided to tell. And, you know, he drove me to and from the YDA classes every single day, every single class. And he did not know what the movie I was making was about. So when I interviewed him, it was kind of Tom Shepard, the founder of Youth Documentary Academy. He, you know, was kind of egging me on and told me, like, Bailey, we have to do this. We have to do this. And um, interviewing my, my dad was probably the most stressful moment in making that film. But I'm happy that I did it. And interviewing my mom was basically the exact opposite because we, you know, we talked about this a lot. You know, my mom was very, very, you know, supportive of my emotions if I was feeling, you know, upset or angry. Just a little bit of context. Bailey, your dad was in the military, and he developed severe post-traumatic stress disorder. He was deployed a number of places. He saw a lot of violence. He also suffered brain injury and spine injury. He tried to kill himself on one of those deployments and was sent home. 
you were just 12 years old and he became violent toward you. He came home, you were in the kitchen, and I heard a scuffle and he had attacked you. And he was holding you over the kitchen sink and he was strangling you. He had, he had a knife to my neck and he was saying like stupid stuff like, you, you know, I wouldn't hurt you, I love you, you're my son, stuff like that. But he had a knife to my neck. He's like, do you trust me? And I, I didn't know what to say. So I was, I was crying and my mom came in and she's like, you know, get off of him. Bailey, that seems like such a difficult memory to relive. How was it to share your story for your own documentary? Um, it was easier filming that than it was, you know, initially showing it to people. And it's, yeah, it's so crazy, crazy hearing it back. Telling my story, you know, Tom really created a community of trust in the Youth Documentary Academy. Like we would talk about our emotions and, you know, kind of, it became like a very, very open community. Like we were not afraid to talk about anything. And Tom made that interview very comfortable. It was almost just like I was speaking, you know, to myself because we had the camera flipped back. So, you know, I was able to kind of look at myself while filming it and it was very easy, but showing the film, that's when I was nervous because I was like, oh my gosh, like it's one thing to just speak in an empty room about how I feel, but showing people that video, that's a little scary. Bailey, you said in your film that you don't want other people to feel alone like you did. Did making your film help you feel less alone? Wow. Um, (laughs) Yeah, no, it definitely, definitely did. It made me realize that my story wasn't just my story. You know, it's like a lot of communities share this story. And like in my community, it was a military community. So a lot of people were experiencing the same thing I did. And showing my film, I showed it to some of my friends, you know, that I knew since I was in third grade, maybe. And I showed them my film and they would text me and say, like, wow, I'm going through the exact same thing at home. Like, why didn't we talk about this? So I feel like it definitely gave me a sense of community, you know, showed me that I wasn't alone. It really took away some stigma to bring that into the open. Um, You mentioned that you were really nervous to talk with your dad about his PTSD, and you did that in your film. Like, in your opinion, how has, like, PTSD and stuff changed your life? (laughs) You're not who you used to be. And just dealing with that fact. You know what was happening. Oh, yeah, I knew what was happening, but, like, did you you feel like you were affected, like, me and mom? No, not really. And if I did, I didn't really care. That's why, you know, we're divorced. You know, it was to control me. Had you talked with your dad much about how his PTSD affected you and your mom before you made this film? I I tried to uh, on occasion, and, you know, sometimes he would open up, but it was always very brief and just kind of out of the blue. And it was kind of an unspoken rule that we would not really bring it up. You know, we're trying to mend our relationship and I'm trying to, you know, learn to forgive him. I was kind of trying to just avoid that area of conversation with them. But that's one of my favorite moments in the entire film. I think it's, uh, it was just a very, very special moment. And yeah, no, I, I really love my dad. It's a really powerful moment. How did making After War affect your relationship with your dad? 
Well, he's always been supportive. And, you know, obviously, like, he had no ill will towards me. Like, I did nothing wrong. And I think he realized that. And I was trying to forgive him. And he was trying to, you know, kind of be like, all right, are things normal yet? And making this film kind of removed that dark cloud that I mentioned earlier, you know, kind of looming over my family and our relationship. And making that film allowed us to talk about the unspoken thing I basically put all my feelings out in the open with that film. And I think it helped my dad, you know, talk to me about it. At first he was embarrassed about the film. You know, it's basically about the darkest and lowest point in his life. Anybody would be embarrassed if a film came out about that. But after about a month, two months, he saw how important the film was he came to a screening and saw how people were reacting after the film and he saw that this film is actually making a difference and he he was always very proud of me but I think he kind of experienced the same thing I did he saw that there was power in our story and we don't need to be ashamed about it and what about your mom how did she respond to seeing the film when you showed it to her she was incredibly impressed she Loved it. Also for her, you know, kind of embarrassing. Like she keeps her drama at home, basically. But, you know, the same thing. She saw that the film was making a difference and and she won't rewatch it. And I don't think my dad would either. But they both, you know, eventually came to terms with it and saw how important the film was, especially in my life. I think they noticed a difference in my attitude about life because making this film allowed me to let it go, you know. It's really vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And that obviously took a lot of courage from all three of you. Thank you for sharing that, Bailey. And thank you for telling me about your film. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. That's Bailey Francisco. He now lives in Trinidad, Colorado, where he's training to be a heavy equipment operator. He won the Young Filmmaker Award in the 2021 Short Circuit Film Festival for his short documentary, After War. He made the film at the Colorado Springs-based Youth Documentary Academy. Now let's hear from Kalia Hunter. She won the Women in Film Award for her short documentary. It's called Dumb. Welcome, Kalia. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here with you. Your documentary also deals with mental health and loss. The opening to your film is just a teenager filming himself dancing in his bedroom. It's really charming. That's Dominic Saunders. Who was Dumb? Yeah, Dominic was, he was a kind of mutual friend that I had when I was in high school. We weren't really ever close, but I was friends with some of his friends. We kind of ran in the same circles. Um, I always knew him as somebody really, well, I actually didn't know this until I started making the film, but someone very musical, but I'd always seen him like hanging out with his friends and he just always looked really happy. Um, And the people who knew him always told me how um, like free spirited and happy and creative he was. And that's something that his friends told you. You interviewed a lot of his friends and they told you about just the happy moments that he would create because he also enjoyed film. And you have a lot of little video clips that he created throughout your film. He was really vibrant. We just had a great sense of humor. It was really easy to get along with him. He also just had like, he just connected with everyone. Through video editing, Dominic would just take these little moments throughout the day, like his happiest moments, and just put them in this little 15-second Instagram video. Really just captured the essence of the day. Like you could just sense the happiness. 
That's Atlanta Halliburton, one of Dom's friends, also one of your best friends. Dom really struggled after his mom died. He took his own life when he was just 14. Kalia, you were also 14 at the time, and you were actually traveling with another of his friends when you heard that he died. Will you tell me more about that time? Yeah, um, that was pretty devastating. Um, we were on a school trip. We had been able to go to China. Um, it was, you know, a great trip. And then one day, the teacher like sits us all down and tells us that Dom had committed suicide and passed away, um, as well as another student that same week. Um, there are two students, both from our school, that had taken their lives in 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 one week. And so, as a fourteen year old, that was absolutely devastating. You know, I, like I said, I wasn't particularly close to him, but this was my first experience with death um, that I had ever personally experienced. And it just unlocked a lot of very intense emotions. And I was with his best friend. Um, They had been friends for a long time. And being 14, you don't really know how to be there for somebody when they're dealing with something when you never dealt with that yourself. And so that was very sad. It's emphasized by the fact that we were 4,000 miles away from home, from family, from other support systems. There was a 12-hour time difference. So it was very, very difficult. Yeah, you're trying to be a support system for friends, and you are just a kid still. We heard from your friend Atlanta Halliburton, who opened up to you in that interview about how devastating Dom's death was. What was it like talking with someone you were close to about something so painful? It was very interesting because... Like I said, we were 14, 15 when it happened. And so our way of coping was just by not really talking about it. After the trip, I came home. My mom knew, but she didn't know how to really like approach it. Because like I said, we weren't very close friends. So I kind of got swept on the rug. We went back to school the next year. Nothing was said. Um, His friends were obviously dealing with it, but nothing officially by the school. And I had never really possessed the vocabulary to really talk about it with my best friend, who I also saw hurting and suffering. But I didn't know how to talk to her about what she was feeling. And so this was the first time that we had really talked about it together. Um, And so it was very powerful, you know, to hear how she had been dealing with it and to hear her be so open with her emotions about what the experience had meant for her. And then as I was making this, I had the opportunity to talk with more of my friends, more of our mutual friends, and they're not featured in the documentary, but they really opened up to me about the experience and how it really changed and shaped them. It really changed and shaped an entire generation of students at the school. Um, I don't know. I don't think that people are ever really the same after something like that. And I mean, you're mentioning some of the same things that Bailey did about just not having the space or the language to talk about things or not knowing how to talk about things. Why did you decide to make a film about Dom and how did that create space to talk? I decided to make this film about Dom because one of the major reasons was that, like I said, when we got back to school, it was completely pushed under the rug. Nobody talked about it. Teachers, counselors, nobody said anything about it. And so I felt like all of the emotions that I was feeling that were coming up, you know, a year, two years after his death, I just didn't know how to process and I didn't have a space to like put them. And then there was also a feeling of guilt because I wasn't best friends with him. I wasn't super close with him, but it just unlocked so many things for me. Um, I needed a space for not only me, but all the people involved to kind of go through it and acknowledge it, because I think that really is the first step to healing is to acknowledge and talk about things publicly. So 
I wanted to celebrate his life. I also didn't want a film that just focused on the end of his life. I wanted to know who he was as a person and to celebrate that and to give his friends and family a space where they could think about Dom and the amazing things that he contributed to their life and, and share that with the world. And um, so that the world could see this vibrant, amazing person who was taken away from us way too young. And you didn't just talk with your friends and Dom's friends. You also interviewed his dad. And this was actually his father's first time speaking publicly about Dom's death. And he talked to you about the sudden death of Dom's mom and how that impacted his son. Dom was here when it all happened. They both were here. And I wasn't. They crushed him. He became a different person. He became a... Uh, stranger. He also shared good memories of his son. My son was handsome. My son was smart. My son was everything that I wanted him to be. Clea, did you hear from Dom's dad about what that experience was like for him to talk with you about those memories? Um, you know, he said that it was painful. It was painful, but that it was a good experience for him too. Like during most of the interview, he would remember things about Dom and be laughing and smiling. And that's really what I wanted to create. Like I said, I didn't want this to be doom and gloom. I wanted this to be a celebration of life. And that really came through, like, um, not even just with Dom's father, his friends as well. Like, there was moments of laughter and moments of genuine happiness, like just remembering and reminiscing about who this young man was. And his father had the had a similar experience. And I'm just really grateful that he was so open to sharing that with me because I didn't know him. I had reached out to him. And this is obviously an extremely difficult topic, especially for a parent to lose a child. I'm, now that I'm a little older, it's like really hitting me how open and vulnerable he truly was with me and it's really amazing that he was he was willing to to talk with me about something so devastating in his life. Yeah, he really opened up and shared some really beautiful memories of Dom. And this is obviously a story that is so particular but also it sheds light on a larger issue. Were you thinking about the many people that we've lost to suicide as you're putting this together and doing those interviews? Yeah, when I made this in 2016, I was not, you know, um, at that point in my life, there had been two people who had committed suicide that, no, three, actually, just by then that I had known. And so I was just thinking about each of them individually. It didn't even really click for me until I got to college and realized this is not like a universal experience like most Students do not have four or five deaths at their high school by the time they're 17. Um, and so, you know, after coming to college and, and realizing that this was like a very unique, very tragic situation, that's when I really started to put together that Colorado Springs and Colorado, we have an epidemic and we have a mental health crisis of our young people and they really need our help. I'm just really grateful that my film can help shed some light to this growing problem that we have. Well, thank you for sharing, Kalia, and congratulations on your award. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Kalia Hunter won the Women in Film Award at this year's Short Circuit Film Festival for her short doc, Dom. Hunter grew up in Colorado Springs. Now she's a senior at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. Kalia Hunter's documentary, Dom, and Bailey Francisco's documentary, After War, will be showcased in the Rocky Mountain PBS series, Our Time in September. Frazier, Colorado, elevation 8,500 feet, has long claimed the title of Icebox of the Nation. Most homes rely on gas furnaces to beat back the cold. But Colorado students recently won a national competition with a home that they say is both affordable and completely electric. Here's CPR climate and environment reporter Sam Brash. Hannah Blake and Gabby Abelo had the same question as they explored a village of futuristic homes in Denver a few years ago. Students had designed the buildings for the Solar Decathlon, a national competition organized by the Department of Energy. I think it was the first home that we toured. We were like, okay, why didn't our, our school participate? Like, how can we do this? That school is the University of Colorado Boulder. The students were sophomores at the time, and Blake says as they were talking, they started to get really pumped on the idea of their own team. And a woman and her husband overhear us, and they're like, well, if you want to start a team, definitely let us know. So I handed them my card, and they reached out. This is Kristen Tedonio. She and her husband, John Smythe, lived in a 300-square-foot condo in Fraser. The students asked if they could build them a standalone house instead. After talking about it a little bit, we decided, yeah. To shape the design, the students decided to take on one of the biggest problems facing the couple and mountain communities in general, affordable housing. Thanks to sky-high building costs, most developers build expensive homes for visitors, not cheaper homes for locals. It was pretty set from the start. We are going to look at mountain towns and make something that people can actually attain. Here's where their task got even more complicated. The competition is for solar-powered homes, which basically meant their dwelling had to be heated with electricity alone. And that put them in the center of a debate about the future of buildings. To combat climate change, environmental advocates are pushing for no natural gas in new construction. Blake says the students wanted to show that's even possible in Fraser. With this house, we're trying to set a precedent for cold climate housing to prove that all electric is possible and beneficial. But that's not easy in frigid mountain towns. Fraser often hits negative 20 in the winter. And to keep warm, most people opt for natural gas, which is far cheaper than electricity per unit of energy. The team leaned into the challenge. Our clients, they don't have gas. They have an electric bill that practically pays for itself. And then all they really have to worry about is their water bill. To see how the students did it, I took a virtual tour. So where where are we now? This is a sort of like dining, living area. Tedonio and Smythe moved in just over a week ago. The house is cozy, just 1,200 square feet. Its exterior is made from charred pine trees, and the inside is spare and modern. The couple quickly zeroes in on maybe the most critical part of the student's design, a big white console thing mounted on the wall, which I find out is the interior unit of the home's electric heat pump system. If you have an air conditioner, what that air conditioner is doing is it's taking heat out of your home, and it's dumping it 
outside. What a heat pump does is it does that exact same thing in reverse. Heat pumps are far more efficient than traditional electric heaters. They're not a new technology, but they couldn't always keep up in cold weather. Tedonio says that's not true for newer models. I get up in the morning and I can sit on the couch under the heat pump and I can feel that warm, quiet air. Smythe says it's even more satisfying knowing the rooftop solar panels can power that system. Right now, in the middle of winter still here, um, we're selling more power back to the grid than we're consuming. It's all pretty nifty, but the couple knows heat pumps probably don't make sense for everyone. Federal data shows 70% of homes in Colorado rely on natural gas heat, and it can be really expensive to retrofit those buildings for all electric heat pumps. Where it makes a lot more financial sense is with new construction. This is like a clear no-brainer. Some utilities have financed research with a different point of view. They warn if Colorado switches to all-electric heat, it risks huge winter demand surges, the same kind of surges that took down the power grid in Texas last February. But the judges for the solar decathlon, they agreed the CU Boulder team showed a single all-electric home could make sense, even in the coldest climates. Last but not least, placing first. U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm announced the top winner over Zoom. Congratulations, see you Boulder. Yay. So yeah, not the fanfare of an in-person award ceremony, but trust me, the students' smiles were electric. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Coming up tomorrow on Colorado Matters, Adrian Miller, known as the Soul Food Scholar, joins us. He'll talk about his new book, Black Smoke, African Americans and the United States of Barbecue. He explores the distinctive regional styles of barbecue, which is rooted in Native American culinary traditions. And he profiles Coloradans who have made their mark on barbecue. That's tomorrow at 9 a.m. Thank you for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs>